voyage. What the hell was that? I think it was a bomb. Is that the Clarendon? See the smoke over the parking lot? Mister, are you okay? Jesus Christ, he's in pieces. He's bleeding out. I need another belt. Tie off the leg. Mister, mister, help is coming. Just stay with us. Hey, wait a minute. I, I know that guy. It's Don Bowles, the reporter. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Telephone my wife. They finally got me. <laughs> the Mafia. Emprise. Find John Adamson. My name is Karen Dunlap. And going back, I will never forget the day that changed my life forever. I think I was 16. I show horses and I had come from a horse show with some friends and we were driving home and we went through Flagstaff where my sisters went to school at NAU. And I stopped to say hi and have lunch with one of my sisters and when I called her, she asked me where I was and she said, I'll be right there, stay there. Uh, she showed up and walked in, or walked up to me, actually we were outside, and she said, "Have you, you don't know anything about dad? And I said, no, what? And she said, oh my God, a man was blown up and they're blaming our dad. Voyage Media presents The Patsy. Don Bowles is a 47-year-old investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. He's been working on a series about the Mafia. Today, as he attempted to start his car, a bomb went off. Tonight, Bowles is in critical condition, fighting for his life. Before he lapsed into unconsciousness, he blamed the Mafia and named a suspect. Don Bowles was a twice Pulitzer-nominated investigative reporter working for the Arizona Republic. The local newspaper for Phoenix covered birthdays and rodeos, but not Don Bowles. He came out from New York to make a name for himself and bring some journalistic truth to a city and state that was steeped in corruption. June 2nd, 1976, would go down as the date of the first assassination of a working journalist in the United States in the modern era. The assassination of Don Bowles was a tragedy that would reverberate in newsrooms and living rooms across the country, but more so in the lives of the victims' families and the families of the accused. This would begin a nearly 50-year journey for one particular family, that of Max Dunlap, who was accused of being the mastermind of the murder. Over the course of 27 years, three trials, many appeals, and numerous pleas for clemency, the Dunlap family's nightmare would play out on a national stage. Their harrowing journey put them in the crosshairs of all the power players in Arizona, from street-level mafia players all the way up to the governor's mansion. One member of the Dunlap family who's never given up her search for the truth about her father's innocence is Karen Dunlap Graham. Uh, growing up in the Dunlap house, was always um, an adventure. We had seven kids and my mom uh, did her best to kind of keep us all under control. Um, 
All of our friends would come and, uh, and play. Everybody liked to be at our house because there was always something going on. And uh, my dad normally wouldn't come home until later in the day. When he came home, we were always so excited to, uh, you know, find out what he was up to or where he was going and stuff. And he was, um, he pretty much was the firm hand, kept us. We never wanted to disappoint our dad. He, uh, he definitely was our... Um, he was the head of our family. We all wanted so bad to uh, please him because he was such a good man. My dad was the kind of man that would give you the shirt off his back. Um, many, many, many times, like if his friends were in need, not only would he go, but he'd make he'd take the whole family with him to go uh, make sure whatever was wrong was was right. As Don Bowles lay dying in his hospital bed, having just had the remains of both legs and an arm amputated. 36 reporters from around the country were sent by their local papers to cover the story under the leadership of Robert W. Green, editor at Newsday, to continue Bull's investigative work. We wanted to send a message to the mob, Green said. Kill one of our own? Three dozen of us will come in to take their place. My name is Don Devereaux. I've been an investigative journalist for more than half a century, going back to about 1970. Began working in this business in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico back at that time. And in the early 70s, I had a chance to work with Don Bowles, who was in Phoenix, in the course of shutting down an organized crime land project development in the Santa Fe area. Uh, Don gave us a great deal of help in tracking that back to mob folks in the Phoenix area, since the general manager was based over here. And uh, so I owed Don a great deal. And uh, when Don was car bombed in 1976, as somebody who felt indebted to him and concerned as a journalist anyway, I felt obliged to come over and take part in what was called the Arizona Project, sponsored by investigative reporters and editors. Uh, about 36 of us came to town uh, to take a look at the, the context in which the Bulls homicide had occurred, uh, the whole problem of corruption in the Phoenix area. And we ultimately wrote some 23 articles, I think it was actually, that got published around the country in, in serialized form in a number of newspapers. And uh, that project wrapped up in 77. And when I left town in 77, I assumed that the Bulls case was being uh, properly prosecuted, investigated and prosecuted at that time. And I didn't begin to discover until 1979, when I went to work for the Scottsdale Progress to take another look at it, that we had been basically uh, led down a, a garden path by the, the law enforcement authorities in Arizona and, and uh, led to believe that the, the righteous investigation was occurring. It was not. Uh, in retrospect, it was a complete miscarriage of justice, a real double tragedy. Not only was Don Bowles killed, but we, in effect, tried to honor him by prosecuting the wrong people, by having a miscarriage of justice. And you can't honor a slain colleague with a miscarriage of justice. When Bowles arrived in Phoenix, he soon began investigating the corruption that was rife within the Greyhound Racing Syndicate in Arizona. He published a series of articles in 1970, which he called The Newcomers, about the 200 or so known members of the mafia who, like him, had recently moved into the state. Arizona was experiencing an exponential growth spurt, which provided multiple avenues for graft, especially in the world of dog racing and land fraud. Arizona's banking laws were lax and enabled shady businessmen to hide their money. Like a Swiss bank account, 
but in the Southwest United States. At the center of all this was a company called Emprise. Emprise Corporation was a conglomerate headquartered in Buffalo, New York, uh, owned and operated by the, uh, the Jacobs family in Buffalo. Uh, Lou Jacobs, uh, in particular, was the patriarch of the family and uh, was known <laughs> somewhat sarcastically by Sports Illustrated as the godfather of sports. Uh, he had a history of being uh, substantially mobbed up. Uh, and Emprise, among other things, owned a lot of sports-related operations, racetracks, uh, sports arenas uh, around the country in Boston and Cleveland and Detroit and Phoenix and all over the country, as a matter of fact heavily involved in a variety of sports operations. And the way that Emprise functioned back in those days was that the local mob family, wherever they were operating, uh, got a piece of the action under the table through skim money. Not through open stock ownership or anything else, but just a minority skim-based skim, skim piece of the pie. And Emprise kept a certain amount of uh, business peace uh, in all the communities it was involved in by allowing the, the mob to have uh, a modest share of the operation. And among the places that they were being looked at in that regard, of course, was Arizona. Uh, back in the 1970s, Emprise was partners with Funk's Greyhound Racing Circuit in ownership of all six Greyhound racing tracks in the state, uh, the major one being right here in, in Phoenix, Arizona. The, the Funk Greyhound Racing Circuit that was partners with Emprise in ownership of the dog tracks essentially consisted of four members of the, of the Funk family two senior members of the, of the clan, David Kay and Arthur, and their respective sons. David's son was Albert, and Albert and Arthur's son was Bradley. Uh, the, old, the two older guys were pretty serious business people. The two younger men tend to be just rich, rich kids, <laughs> kind, of, kind of riding on the, on the gravy chain of the, of the family business. They weren't really the guys that ran the show or really were that skilled at anything, frankly. And Bradley was, among other things, a drunk at that time. Uh, Bradley had been involved in a messy divorce in the late 60s uh, with Betty, and they had a child, daughter named Sydney. And Don Bowles became friendly with Mrs. Funk, I think somewhat opportunistically initially, because she needed all the help she could get getting through the divorce. But he kind of gave her moral support and, and got quite close to her, and over the succeeding few years, ultimately ended up in a, in a, a fair relationship with, with Betty Funk at the time. And Don rather pointedly would tell her things he was interested in learning, and she would add those to her motion for production of documents, whether it was from Funk personally or the, the Greyhound racing business that he was part of. And it was one of the ways Don was learning a great deal about the financial operation that he was interested in. Don was convinced that the Greyhound tracks here, with Emprise involved, were also mobbed up like every other Emprise operation around the country. And he'd been involved in years trying to prove that, trying to nail that down so he could actually go to print as a, as a reporter and, and uh, make that claim and make it stick. And so he was heavily looking for the, the mob connection, and he was using Betty Funk as his confidential North number, number three uh, to get at that topic. And in the process, obviously, he was really <laughs> making Bradley Funk very unhappy. Uh, here's a reporter messing with his wife and using her standing in court to get financial information that even IRS probably couldn't get or the FBI couldn't get. Uh, he had peculiar standing through her to get really into the bowels of, of Bradley's financial world. In the moments after the bombing, 
As Don Bowles lay bleeding out on the asphalt of the Clarendon Hotel parking lot, his last words were, Telephone my wife. They finally got me. The Mafia. Emprise. Find John Adamson. John Harvey Adamson was a, a relatively young man back in the 1970s. He was a guy who had gone to ASU briefly. Uh, he was kind of a, a character around town, a, a ne'er-do-well by anybody's stretch of the imagination. Probably a bit of a sociopath in terms of his uh, way his, his head worked. Uh, who, who kind of made a living uh, doing kind of off-the-book stuff, a lot of which was illegal. Uh, but he scratched a living together, among other ways, as a fence, as a small to mid-level drug dealer. On June 2nd, 1976, uh, John had already been in touch with, with uh, Don Bowles and had arranged a meeting with him on the 2nd at the Clarendon Hotel around 11.30 in the morning. Uh, John had told Don Bowles over the phone that he had some information to, to, to trade with or to give to, to, to Don concerning some prominent people in the state who were involved, uh, John alleged, in some land fraud activity. And uh, Don reluctantly uh, agreed to meet with him, reluctantly because he didn't have much respect for Adamson, he was kind of a punk and, and didn't have a whole lot of belief in his credibility. But Don was curious enough and also believed that you know he should at least listen, hear what the guy had to say, so he agreed to the meeting and uh, it went. Uh, he'd been there at the Clarendon for a matter of minutes, waiting in the bar, when the phone rang in the bar, and it was John Adamson canceling the meeting. So at that point, John left, uh, went down a long hallway past the swimming pool, stopped to have a brief conversation with an attractive young woman who was swimming in the pool, which was typical of John's noticing of things like that and then drifted on through that hallway out the back door into the parking lot, uh, got into his brand new Datsun, which he had just bought days before, uh, started to back out, and as he had backed out maybe uh, half the length of the car, ultimately was taken to a hospital uh, where over a period of the next 11 days he gradually suffered the amputation of both legs and one arm. He had suffered a lot of shrapnel damage from the explosion and he had suffered as a consequence a great deal of infection problems all over his body. Bowles had already received numerous death threats at home and at work concerning his investigative reporting and published articles in the Arizona Republic newspaper. Why did he go to lunch with someone like Adamson? He must have known it had risks. He would often tell his wife, they won't kill a journalist. Don Bowles' wife, Rosalie, stayed with him for 11 excruciating days in the hospital while her close friend stayed with the Bowles' children. She would give her nightly updates. They've amputated his right leg, his left arm, and now they want to cut off his right leg. There's going to be nothing left of them. The dynamite bomb that went off under Bull's legs was intended to kill him instantly, but did not. The bomber didn't account for the fact that Bulls was tall, six foot three, and slid his car seat back. As Bull lay dying in a hospital bed, the nation's eyes turned toward Phoenix. Every major newspaper, 
news outlet, and network news broadcast covered the fate of the intrepid reporter as his life hung in the balance. His doctor said he had never seen a more heroic fight for life. But after 11 days of hospitalization during which both legs and an arm had to be amputated, Don Bowles died. His passing did not go unnoticed. Condolences flooded in from all around the country. President Gerald Ford sent a telegram to Don Bowles' widow, Rosalie. Mrs. Ford and I and millions of citizens across the nation were deeply shocked by the senseless criminal violence that tragically deprived you of your husband and our free press of a prize-winning investigative reporter. Our thoughts are with you and your children as we pray that God will give you the courage to persevere through these difficult days. We hope that you and your family will find sustaining comfort in the knowledge that your husband dedicated his life to the search for truth and the integrity he brought to his profession will endure as an inspiration for his colleagues for a long time to come. Your children can find, reflected in their father's career, the finest principles of our way of life to guide them in their formative years. They have been cruelly robbed of a devoted parent, but they also have been blessed by a memory that is worthy of being cherished and emulated. It is a memory that invokes the qualities of personal character and civic responsibility, which strengthen not just their lives, but the life of our democratic society. During the course of the 11 days that Don Bowles clung to life from his hospital bed, the Phoenix Police Department began their investigation. Detective John Sellers from the Homicide Division would take the lead. His first order of business was to see Bowles in the hospital. Sellers had a mugshot of John Adamson, the man whom Bowles named as he lay mortally wounded in the parking lot of the Clarendon Hotel. Call my wife. Tell her they finally got me. The Mafia. Emprise. Find John Adamson. Though Bowles could not speak, he was able to provide non-verbal confirmation to Detective Sellers that Adamson should be the first person to speak with. But before they could track him down, Sellers received a call from the state's top defense attorney, who had been hired by Neil Roberts, a local attorney and known fixer for many of the power brokers of Phoenix. Roberts had some thoughts to share on the Bowles case. When, when Bowles was bombed, there was a problem that had not been, I think, anticipated by the people that did it. Don had left a note on his typewriter at the Capitol press room indicating his plans to meet with a fellow named John Adamson. And Don lived or was conscious long enough after the bombing to also identify Adamson by name uh, to the cops at the scene when he was lying on the ground and getting medical care. He talked about Adamson Emprise, the mafia, as being involved in, in, in what happened to him. Uh, this created a problem, obviously, for everybody that was involved in it. And at that point, the beginnings of a, an alternative theory of the crime began to develop. Uh, Neil Roberts, a, a local attorney and friend of John Adamson's and a friend of Brad Fox, uh, was probably the principal architect of the, of the, uh, of the frame that developed uh, as a consequence to protect the people that really did it. Uh, but he offered a, a 
not knowledge to law enforcement, he offered a theory of the crime, uh, that maybe this is what happened. He said, uh, maybe because Don Bowles had written an article about a fellow named Kemper Marley, rich man who was in both the liquor business and a lot of land ownership in Arizona at that time, uh, who was very close to Max Dunlap. Maybe, maybe because Don Bowles had written an article that was critical of Kemper back in February of that year, uh, maybe Max Dunlap had decided as a favor or even as instruction from Kemper as a kind of frontier justice uh, to get even and a res responsible in some fashion for the Bowles homicide. He didn't offer it as an accusation, just as a theory of the crime. And ultimately for that theory of the crime, he got initially uh, an immunity uh, after the fact uh, to protect him from the fact that uh, on, the, on the day of the homicide, he in fact had arranged to get John Adamson taken up to Lake Havasu to get him out of town for a while so that nobody could get to him uh, until they could figure out how everybody get their stories straight. So Neil Roberts, the local fixer and mobbed-up attorney in Phoenix, offered a narrative for who planted the bomb that killed Don Bowles, and a motive. Apparently, he had no problem selling the story to lead homicide investigator John Sellers. And that's why Neil, that's why Neil Roberts ultimately came to us and gave us a sworn statement. His information sounded pretty good to us early on. So, in a sense, the sworn statement that we took from Neil in the presence of John Flynn and the Deputy County Attorney Gene Neal was a good investigative tool because based on that is why we pulled Max Dunlap down to talk to him. Neal circumstantially implicated Max Dunlap with Kemper Marley and the rangeland justice type theory and so forth. But based on that information and then based on Neal Roberts' sworn statement, and based on our, our research that who Max Dunlap was now and his relationship to Camper Marley, we pulled Max down and talked to him. And uh, as you know, he uh, he's a very charismatic guy. He likes to talk a lot and say nothing. <laughs> yes. And he likes to promote himself as being honest and wonderful and a good husband, a good father. And I, my books are open and, you know, uh, I'm going to tell you everything I know, then I just want you to go away and leave me alone. I don't know nothing, but I'll tell you whatever I know and stuff like that. Well, on the second time around, now, he was tape recorded secretly, about a 70-page transcript. And during this period of time, he tells us this bullshit story about Neil Robertson and some of his dealings with Neil Roberts and his dealings and his relationship with John Adamson, which turned out basically to be half right and half wrong. And uh, ultimately, he uh, agreed and demanded, in a sense, several times to take a polygraph test. Because he kept saying, you know, Neil Roberts is saying this, and I want to clear myself with Neil Roberts. And uh, so we took him down, we gave him a polygraph test. Well, he flunked it, yeah. flunked two of them. And there was a reason for that. So Neil Roberts arranged for John to be flown to Havasu in a private plane that day. And Havasu was where John stayed until the following day when he came back to Phoenix. And by the time he was back, everybody kind of had their ducks in a row about where they were going to go with this story. Uh, but Neil was planting the seed at that time that, that uh, Marley and, and maybe Max Dunlap uh, had been involved in this thing. 
and it got more serious than just these kinds of conversations with the police. Uh, that Friday morning, two days after the bombing, uh, Neil and John were at the Ivanhoe uh, drinking and knew that they were immediately surrounded on both sides at the bar with undercover cops because they were being surveilled at the time. And they began talking in very loud voices between themselves about the fact that John was owed money still for, for the crime which he had been involved in. And Neil is saying, you better tell your fat friend up on Bethany Hall that he should pay you the money he owes you, talking about Max. And uh, they were doing their very best to further the story, uh, knowing that the police were monitoring that conversation at the bar uh, to, to make it look like quite clearly from the outset that Max Dunlap was going to be the guy that took the fall. Uh, so it wasn't just his confession or his plea deal. It was lots of little things that happened like that uh, that put the police in the direction of, uh, of Dunlap. As a consequence, Max was under surveillance along with Neil uh, within a matter of a few days of the bombing. By that weekend, he was certainly being surveilled on Bethany Home at that time uh, as a possible uh, suspect in, in the crime. Max Dunlap's daughter, Karen Graham, kept her father's journals from that time specifically Max's description of the purported money drop. And this is what he had to say about that incident at his home on Bethany Road. On the morning of June 10th, 1976, a young man drove up in the corner of my circular driveway, got out of his car and walked over to my truck, which I was about to get in. He handed me a brown paper bag and a business card with the name Tom Foster written on it. He told me that Neil Roberts sent him to ask me if I would please deliver the money to this attorney for him. He was in trouble and needed my help. The money needed to be broken down from $100 bills to 20s and delivered by 3 p.m. He then walked back to his car and drove off. I stood there contemplating my options. Honestly, I did not want to do it, but since I never did anything wrong, I guess I figured I would do the favor. I drove back to Phoenix, went to my own bank. I walked up to the same bank teller I used frequently for my personal transactions and handed him $3,000 in $100 bills. She did not have enough $20 bills, so she had to give me $50 bills to break down the hundreds. Since I had no idea what Neil Roberts was setting me up for, I drove to McCleary Drugstore at Central Camelback to break the 50s down to 20s like Neil had requested. I put the cash in a manila envelope as directed by the young man that brought it to me. I marked J.A. in the corner of the envelope as directed and drove it to Park Central parking lot. I walked into Tom Foster's office to hand the envelope to his secretary. John Adamson was there also. I had marked J.A. in the corner as Neil had sent word to do. But as I walked into the office and saw Adamson there, he waved me into an office just off the lobby. I said, John, Neil sent this over this morning through some young fellow. I said, Neil can't get near this place and asked me to bring it up to Foster's office. Should I leave this with Foster's secretary or just give it to you? John Adamson said, well, I will take it. I asked John, what's going on? He seemed like he was in a stupor, talking very slow. He stood and gazed out of the window most of the time and seemed to be incoherent in his speech. I left and went about my own business. I never dreamed of what was about to happen to me. Not in a million years. Another child of Max's who hasn't given up the search for the truth is Mike Dunlap. 
anyway, that's how Neil Roberts implicated my dad as the paymaster uh, for this crime. You know, I don't even think Neil thought this story was going to stick 120% because he changed it uh, a little bit after the fact uh, during the different parts of the uh, trials when things were falling apart on their side. But um, anyways, that's why I think my dad was uh, charged for that. Once the immunity deal was in place, Detective Sellers and his partner moved quickly to round up the supposed perpetrators fingered by Neil Roberts. Hello, my name is Elaine Roberts, and since 1976, June the 2nd, I have been heavily involved and implicated in the Don Bowles murder. During the years that I've worked for Neil Roberts, I have concluded that he was probably the most evil, vicious, drunk that I ever met. Uh, the day that my dad was a... Sorry, arrested. I think as one of those memories I don't want to think about. <laughs> um, like I said, our family was a large family, so... All the kids, like when there was a knock on the door, we had no idea what was happening. And my mom, if I recall, I, I know it was earlier, it was earlier in the morning, but I remember um, all of the kids, we all looked at each other like, what's happening? And uh, I want to say it was probably John Sellers, if I recall, walked in the door and said, Max, we're here to arrest you. And my dad was literally, I just remember him nodding his head like, okay, like he didn't know what to do. And my mom, I will tell you, I sat next to her and she sat down on a chair and was like dry heaving. She was so upset. I mean, I've never seen my mom do that, but but um, she, we were frantic. Like we kept, the, we had kind of a round living room window and you could see outside and there were like, a, they had the, the, the house surrounded by a SWAT team and there was helicopters flying overhead. It was just insane. Like we were looking at each other going, how on earth, how on earth could this be happening to us? And we were just a normal family. And my dad, I was crying my eyes out looking at him and he kept looking at all of us saying, it's okay, it's okay, you guys, it's okay. You know, the, the truth will prevail, the truth will prevail. I know absolutely within my heart and soul that Max Dunlap was wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully accused. And it's just always sort of been in the pit of my stomach that people like Neil Roberts and all of these other people involved were such terrible people. And yet on the few occasions I met Max Dunlap, he was impeccably dressed. He was a total gentleman. Neil had told me he had a large family, and I think, really, that Neil was quite jealous of uh, Max because I said to him, that's something you haven't really had, is it? A, a warm, close family like you tell me Max has. 
and um, he told me that the women he was with were um, not of the same caliber that maybe Mrs. Dunlap might be. But the truth about Don Bowles' assassination has fractured like a broken crystal vase. For the last 46 years, each piece has reflected a different truth for all those involved, especially the two families at the center of this tragedy. But whose truth was really true? And what was the price to pay in order to reveal it? Don Bowles would not be the last person to lose his life in this pursuit, as his editor and sole confidant would find out the hard way. Uncovering the truth is a dangerous thing, especially when powerful people don't want it to get out. Max Dunlap believed in the justice system, where the innocent get to plead their case in front of an impartial jury of their peers. And the other side, the prosecution, follows by the rules because the state also wants to get to the bottom of what really happened. Justice must be served, but it must be served to the right person. Max Dunlap and his family would learn that everything they believed about the system was wrong, and the ramifications of that would reverberate throughout the state and country as the case unfolded. Over the next five episodes, the Patsy will explore why was Don Bowles killed, and who covered it up, and most importantly, why did Max Dunlap take the fall? The Patsy is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced, reported, and written by Chris Leach and Adam Prince, and directed by Chris Leach. Executive produced by Nat Mundell, Karen Graham, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins, with additional editing by Nick Masidi and Andres Coca. Narrated by Joshua Molina. Cast credits available in the show notes. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution. Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.